name's Jim. What's your name? <laughs> Don't answer. Uh, hey, I want to uh, tell you, I got to kind of stop and tell you the story of how things unfolded last week with the closing, because I, I honestly, I, it was one of those moments where I felt like uh, if you've had a moment in your life where you actually know that people are praying and that God is actually doing something, it, it was one of those moments for me. I, we, we, um, the background on our closing on the property is that we had to close on either Wednesday or Thursday. And if we went past those days, we would actually lose the property because our contract ended on those days and the uh, financing behind the sellers was going to kill the whole thing if we didn't get it uh, by Thursday and foreclose on the property. So we were under the gun on this one. And on Monday morning, we had 72 hours till closing on Wednesday. And we woke up uh, and there were three major issues that needed to get solved, all three of which could sink the whole thing. And one of them was around a, um, a sewer easement. We needed to get a sewer easement across the train tracks where we could run our sewer. And the person that we had kind of cut a deal with in the past had come back and asked for about four times as much money. And so that was a problem. And so, so we had that big problem to solve. We, had a, uh, we believed that a railroad spur was on our property, which our lender was saying if the spur was located on our property that they wouldn't lend us money. And then the third issue, oh my gosh, I, like th that's what I spent all the week before trying to figure out. The third issue I found out on Friday morning that when we rezoned the property back in October, we needed to have signed uh, a Mylar document. I thought Mylar was for balloons. Apparently they make paper out of mylar that you print uh, these big official agreements on and all the uh, surrounding neighbors that are part of this deal had to sign this in a special sharpie. <laughs> I am not kidding you. And it had to be done before closing. We found this out Friday. The problem is, is that the different parties, one of them was in California. One of them uh, is the Archdiocese of Denver which um, may not necessarily be built to sign something immediately. And uh, the other one was the mayor of the city of Louisville. So uh, we're trying to figure out how in the world are we going to get these Mylar documents signed by uh, Thursday and I, or by Wednesday. And I, I honestly, so Monday morning we woke up, we had 72 hours. I'm like, all three of these issues could sink us. So uh, the other two got resolved. The railroad spurs on somebody else's property the sewer easement got resolved because we went to the people to the north and quickly offered them a deal and they responded with two minutes to spare on the contract on Monday evening, which I just was like about to pass out. And then the Mylar, the guy from California didn't want to fly out uh, to do it, obviously. I almost got on a plane Sunday to take it to him and have him sign it. But finally we got him to relinquish power of attorney to a friend of his. And so the friend actually with the special Sharpie signed it on Tuesday. Uh, on Tuesday night, we were extremely fortunate that the city council was meeting and the mayor was gonna be there and willing to sign it on Tuesday night. To which uh, our attorney said to us, the city must love you because this doesn't happen like this. The, the challenge was trying to get the archdiocese, uh, Catholic archdiocese of Denver to sign this by closing. 
So on Monday, we asked, or on Friday, we asked them to sign it. It was all stuff that we'd already agreed to, but they said it's got to go through our internal processes, all this stuff. Monday, I get a message from them saying, I'm sorry, we can't sign this today. Tuesday, I just decided to drive down to Denver with the Mylar and the Sharpie, and I sat in their lobby and just was like, I, I'm not leaving until they sign this thing. And so I sat there, and finally, uh, uh, I get an email from their the archdiocese attorney that says, I'm really sorry, Jim, but uh, the person that needs to sign off on this is not there. We're not going to sign this today. So I went home on Tuesday. Closing is on Wednesday. We had to push back the closing hour to give us as much time so that I could try to get this thing signed in the morning. On Wednesday morning, I drove down to the archdiocese again, and I sat in their lobby again. And I'm in contact with their attorney, and finally this woman comes out and says, I'll take the documents from you. And I was like, yes, thank you. So I hand her the documents, and she goes, but these aren't going to get signed today. And I went, oh, you know, uh, really? I, I have to have them sign it? She's like, I'm sorry, but we just do not, this is not, you know, we're, they were super nice, but just this isn't, we're not able to get this done and all the approvals that we need and all the stuff. And it has to be signed by the very good reverend such and such and such. And, and by the way, why don't you guys call me the very good reverend such and such? I, I, I mean, that was my big takeaway from this thing. I swear I'm going to start wearing one of those old collar things if it makes you do that. So, um, so the very good reverend is not going to be able to sign this today. He's got meetings all day, you know. And I'm like, you don't understand. We're close. You know, I've talked to the attorney. I know, but blah, blah, blah. And I was like, can I just wait? And just in the odd chance that you can sign, can I just wait in your lobby today? She's like, have at it. So I sat down in their lobby and I started reading books. And uh, about an hour and a half later, she walks out and she has in her hands both the Mylar and another document, both the documents that we needed signed. And they were signed in her hands. And she looks at me and she goes, you are so lucky. <laughs> the good reverend opened his door. <laughs> so she had him signed. And I was like, thank you. I mean, you know, I can't believe this. He's so, thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's what I want you, this, I kid you not, this is what she said. She looks at me and she goes, this is kind of a miracle. <laughs> she, she goes, I don't know who's praying for you, but have them pray for me. So, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. This is exactly what happened. So uh, if you want to join our prayer team, uh, email prayer at ascentcc.org. I'm serious. Um, but so I left the archdiocese. I've got a grin on my face this big. I went out. I took a selfie in front of their sign. I was so happy with myself. There we go. And then, um, and then I decided that that selfie didn't work out well. So this little priest guy came by, and I was like, hey, come here. And he took this better picture of me. And so there it is, guys. We got it. So, yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Okay, Lord. Now the real fun begins, right? Trying to, trying to build this thing. And uh, there's more info on the back of the bulletin, but we think we'll get there in 2019 sometime. We will ascent. We'll have a new home. And what Chris said was very true. It is, I was keenly aware this week this was not about me and not about, he said some kind words, but this has been an incredible team effort. We have had people you cannot believe giving time. And then we have had hundreds of people that have given money to be able to make this happen. So thank you. Whatever role you've played, thank you so much for that. And I hope you'll grab a key when you leave. So um, I want to I uh, kick off. We're, we're in the last uh, week of this series. Oh, man, and I'm all fired up. Um, the, the series we've been doing is called Finding Your Way Back to God. And I want uh, to start today by telling you a story. And, and, and for some of us, this is going to be sensitive. I recognize, because these are challenging stuff. 
So I had this friend who uh, I knew in high school, and um, she was like some of those kids that this, this happens all the time, especially being somebody that's been a youth pastor, student ministry pastor for years and years before Ascent. You see this. A kid uh, gets invited by a friend to go to church camp and goes to church camp, and um, they think one thing. You think one thing when you get to church camp. You think, oh, that doesn't sound like fun. And you, you show up, and in this case, just amazing. This kid, uh, this woman goes to camp and just loves it, totally surprised her. The people, the fun they had, the leaders, you know, just all the stuff. She starts hearing about Jesus at this camp and is just like, this is not the guy that I thought. I like that guy. I like that. Like I could, yes. And decides during this camp that she is going to follow Jesus. And of course, it doesn't matter what age you are. Whenever you say that, whenever you decide I am going to follow Jesus, we all, of course, only, have, only know this much of what we're actually saying. And so that was true of her. It's true of us. And she stepped into that just, you know, going, I'm in. So she came back home from camp, and uh, I've seen this. She, she comes back home from camp, and her parents were not real pleased with that idea. They had sent her, because they liked the idea of sending your kid away to learn good morals, ethics, that kind of stuff. Of course, church camp, yeah, that's great. But when she starts talking about, I've given my life and I want to follow Jesus, that crossed the line for her parents. And so her parents started to kind of put some shame on her of like, eh, let's not go there. That's, that's too much. She felt that from her group of friends as well because her life started changing and they didn't like how that looked and so there was some shame in that. And so it's probably, you know, maybe seventh, eighth grade, she went to camp and then over time, Jesus and all the pressure of all the stuff that's on her started to send Jesus into the rear view mirror of her life. And she kind of started seeing God from a distance. And, and you guys know, if, if, if you've ever walked this road, you know what this feels like. It, it's like an old friend, but like way behind because I'm off and I know that I'm running away. I know that I'm getting away from home. I'm moving away from God. And it almost feels like there's an inertia to that that can't be stopped. That's what it feels like. And she felt that. And so she's moving away from home. She meets this guy her junior year. They start to date. I'll be honest, the guy was bad news. And, and, and they're dating, and uh, before you know it, here she is. She's like two months away from going off to college, and she finds out that she's pregnant. Does like a little home test, finds out she's pregnant, and she's terrified. Boyfriend breaks up with her. She's got about a month to go to, to get off to college. She's not going to tell her parents. She's terrified about how they're going to respond. She doesn't feel like there's hardly anybody else that she can share with. She, she's tempted to pray, but again, it's like feeling like talking to an old, old friend that you haven't talked to for a long time and you're fearful of how they're going to respond or how they've changed. And so she doesn't actually pray because she doesn't know how God would respond to her. What she decides to do is she decides to walk into an abortion clinic. And so that was the end of that story for that life. But it was the beginning of just the incredible birth of shame in her life. She struggled so hard with that decision. And now she's in a position where she feels like, I can't tell anybody about what happened. And I certainly can't tell God. And she went through that, that, the depth of the shame around what happened there for 20 years. 20 years. 
Guys, this series, I'm telling you, finding your way back, it, 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 it is for anybody who feels like you have wandered away from God at some point, are now wandering away from God, or may wander at some point in the future. In other words, it's for every single one of us. Because we have all wandered away from God. A couple weeks ago, we talked a little bit about it. Maybe you, if you were here, you remember, I talked about some of the reasons why I think we, we wander away from home, we wander away from God. What, what are the reasons for that? Why do we take off and leave God? We talked about that. Today, I want us to talk a little bit about when we wander away from God, what keeps us away from home? What is it that uh, keeps us there and we don't come back? Here's this friend of mine, 20 years, 20 years away from God. What are the things that can keep us from him? And I think there's, there's three traps. I'm telling you, every single one of us is going to face these three, three traps to some degree. And, and I want to talk through those traps today of where we can get trapped into being away from home, being away from God. So... The way we've been framing this is with the parable, some people call it the parable of the prodigal son, some people call it uh, the loving dad, Uh, it's in Luke chapter 15, and you know what I thought today, I was going to read you the whole thing, and instead, here's what we're going to do, I want you to hear this parable the way it was intended to be heard, it actually wasn't intended necessarily when Jesus said it to to be read off the page. It was intended to be heard. So I want you to sit back. Let me tell you the story, okay? So a man had two sons. He's got an older son. He's got a younger son. The younger son came to the dad and said to him, Dad, I actually want all my money, my inheritance, now. Can't wait till you die. I want my money now. Get this. The dad did it. He divided up his money And he handed the money of his inheritance to his younger son. And the younger son took all that money, and a couple days later, he piled everything he owned up onto a big cart, and he took off down the road. And that younger son just kept on going until he got to the furthest land that he could get away from home. And when he got there, he took all that money, and he just blew it. He blew it on women and booze and wild living and party after party. Here's the thing, as soon as all that money runs out, and of course it runs out in the end, as soon as the money ran out, this famine hit. Everybody's hungry now, and this guy has no food. The younger son is way away from home, he's got no food, and nobody's given him anything. He begins to starve. He gets so desperate, he goes to a farmer a local farmer, and he says to him, can I do anything on your land? The farmer says to him, you know what, I don't have much, but you can at least work with the pigs. Here's this Jewish boy now who's working with pigs on a pig farm. He goes in, and he's, he's working with pigs day after day. He is looking at the slop, honestly, the slop that these pigs are eating, just dreaming of eating it because he's got nothing, and nobody's given him anything. He sits there far enough, and finally something happens. He has a key moment, and he finally comes to his senses. Sitting in the sty, and he comes to his senses, and he realizes, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Back home with my dad, 
even the servants that are working for my dad, they've got like more food than they know what to do with. And here I am starving. So he decides, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say to my dad, dad, I have sinned. I am so far gone. I, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just would you please take me in and let me be one of your servants. I just want something to eat. So he gets all his stuff and he heads back home. Get this. He's on his way home and in the distance, the dad actually sees him. The dad has been watching. The dad sees him out on the road and the dad leaves his house and runs out onto the road, takes off toward his kid and the kid sees him running and he comes up to him and he just throws his arms around his son and he hugs him and he kisses him. And the kid starts his speech. He says, dad, I have sinned against you and against God and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad interrupts him. Quick, grab my robe, get my ring, get some sandals on these bare feet. We are going to kill that cow that we've been fattening up because there is a steak dinner happening tonight because my kid is home. And he takes his son and they head back to the house and the party starts to rage in there. End of story, right? There's the older son. Older son has been out in the field this whole time, working. And he hears something coming from the house. He hears the music. He hears dancing. I got to tell you guys, if you hear dancing, that is like serious dancing, you know? <laughs> He, he calls one of the servant guys over to him, and he says, what's going on? He goes, your brother's back. Remember, your brother who took off, he's back. He was lost, but now he's found, and your dad has killed the cow, and it is a steak dinner in there tonight. Man, when the brother hears this, he is furious. Are you kidding me? After all this? And he refuses to come back in. Well, the dad gets wind that the older brother is outside. And so once again, the dad leaves the house. This time he goes out to the older brother. And he begs him, come back in. The older brother looks at the dad and says, I have worked and slaved for you my entire life. I have never, not even once, disobeyed anything that you asked me to do. All through that time, you never once even killed a little goat so that I could have something to eat with my friends. But instead, when this son of yours comes back, you kill the cow and it is a steak dinner for him? The dad looks at him and he says, my boy, you're my boy. Man, everything, everything I have in this house belongs to you. I love you. But this brother of yours was lost and he's now found. He was dead, but he's now alive, so we got a party. 
God, help us to hear this story fresh, and I pray, God, that uh, you help us find ourselves in this story today. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I think one of the reasons why that story is like, it's, I'm sorry, it's one of the greatest stories ever told, is the brilliance of Jesus coming out because it's so multidimensional, and it, it captures our lives because every single one of us fits into the category of somebody who started at home. You start at home. You start with God. You start with a God that knows you, loves you. And, and, and I've got to ask, do you believe that, right? Like, we have a God that created us and knows us, and we, we are in his presence, and he cares for us. And every single one of us leaves it. We all choose to leave home. And I, and I talked a couple weeks ago about how there's a couple different reasons why I think we choose to leave home. And the two reasons I talked about were I think we leave home because we leave looking for love and we leave looking for adventure. Both of these things were given to us by God. You're wired to want these two things. I'm wired to want love and adventure. The problem is, is when we twist that and we leave home looking for love and adventure outside of this, outside of what God has created you to be. We go looking for love in all the wrong places. And often we stay there. Guys, this is why the younger son runs away from home. He's looking for these two things. This is why I run away from home. We're looking for these two things. I want to add a third one, though. I think we run away from home because we're looking for significance. I think we want our lives to actually matter. We, we run away because we're not sure that it matters back at home with God. We run away and we start to find our identity in our money, in our resume, in how people at school see us. Are we the athlete, cool, per, you know? We start to look for significance in things other than what God has for us. If you've seen The Greatest Showman, the movie that's out now. I love that there's the line that they start singing, I've been, my eyes have been blinded by the lights. I, I, I got too caught into the fame. I got too caught into the circle that can just grab me and hold on to me and it just ends up going faster and faster and faster because I keep looking for love and adventure and significance and I look for them in the wrong spaces. And what happens is, and this, this is true with this prodigal, he goes away and you find out that these things don't last. Now he made a really important decision. He came to his senses. But sometimes, for some of us, we end up staying in this circle. We end up going round and around. And so we find out that one thing that we thought might bring us love, adventure, or significance doesn't work. We just move on to the next thing. And we find out quickly that that one doesn't work. And so we move on to the next one. And we end up in this spiral that just keeps going like a plane that's coming down until it just keeps going faster and faster until it's really hard to recover. Guys, this is trap number one. This, this is a place that so many of us get caught in and stay in. And I, the tragedy of tragedies is that people die in this. And we end our lives eventually still trapped looking in the wrong places for love, adventure, and significance. The beautiful thing about this parable and why it's so just, oh, he does it. 
The younger son does it, but he comes to his senses. He reflects enough somehow on his life where he realizes where he's been is wrong. He comes to his senses and he moves on. Now, he's going to face what I think a lot of us will face as a next step. And this is the step that my friend that I told you the story about at the beginning, this is what she felt for 20 years. We may move beyond trap number one and just find that trap number two is waiting for us. You know, I, um, I, I have a friend who's a therapist, and I asked her this week about her job. And I said, hey, don't tell me names, but when you talk with people, what are the kinds of things you hear about, you know, all the time? And it was really interesting. She said the things that generally come up for people are sex and alcohol. She's like, I, I spend the majority of my week working through issues around sex and alcohol and people's deep sense of shame around those two issues. She's like, what I notice is, is that almost everyone that I talk to thinks that they're the only ones who are dealing with these kinds of things and that they can't actually share these things with anyone else. And so they keep them secret. They harbor them out of shame. I don't think it's a mistake that in the parable, you hear this young son go off into a distant land, and what is he doing? It's sex and alcohol. Now, I know there's a million other things that can draw us away from God. But I wonder just for a moment, just to stop and think of those two. Guys, I bet every person in this room, every family in this room has skeletons in our closets that we will not share around these two issues. And it's so funny because we walk around each other all the time, everyone with issues, but they, but they never come up and bubble to the surface and come out and actually get shared in the light of day. And what this therapist told me was, she, she had a great quote. She said, you know, what happens is, is when we don't share things, when we're not honest about our lives and our pasts, we end up kind of living in the darkness over that. And in that darkness is where you get lies and shame that weaves their way through our lives and gets spread. Man, one of the beautiful things about our prodigal son is that not only did he come to his senses, he realized that he was guilty, right? He, he understood that he was guilty, but he avoided the trap. He stayed out of the trap of shame. This is trap number two. Trap number two that you can spiral in forever is the idea of shame. It's okay to feel guilty. For me, anyway, when I feel guilty, often it's because I am, you know? And, and I know that I've done something wrong. But if, if you're familiar with Bre Brene Brown at all, she's this great kind of definition of this. She says, guilt is knowing that you have done something wrong. Shame is the idea of believing that you are wrong. My friend, after 20 years of living not in guilt, but living in shame, finally prayed. It was crazy. She was um, 
She's walking through a flea market. This is, God is just crazy how he does stuff like this. Walking through a flea market and saw some embroidered quilt or something that said on it, as far as the east is from the west, so I have removed your sins from you. And she saw the sign, she saw this little quilt and she thought, wow, the east and the west, there's no fixed points in that. You can't even calculate how far those two things are from one another. God has, somehow that clicked for her. God has, God has removed that from me somehow. And she actually started baby step, started praying, and started climbing out of this trap number two, which is shame. Guys, there are people in this room who have lived in shame. I just, I want to beg you, come home. You can break. You can come home. You can break out of that and you can come home. And when we do, we'll face another issue too. I think sometimes what happens, and this is true of my um, friend as well, sometimes what happens when we decide to break free from the lights and the fame, trap one, and we decide to break free from the shame of what we've done, trap two, we might wander home to God expecting that God will do what everybody else does in our life, and that is expect payback. So you guys know this. What we do is we project things that we know about people and systems, whatever. We project the way the world works onto how God works. And we know that most of the world expects payback for something wrong. So, you know, if I cheat on a test and I get caught, there's going to be some kind of payback that's going to be expected by the teacher, professor, whatever. If I am speeding around Louisville and the cops pull me over and I get a ticket, I'm gonna, there's going to be a payback for that, except for the case of our sound guy, Scott, who was out driving the other day. He got pulled over by a Louisville police department who saw the Ascent sticker on his car, came to the window and said, thank you for the toys, and let him go. I, I'm telling you, I, get those stickers on your cars right now and drive as fast as you want around this town. Awesome thing, right? So ask him about it. We, right? So we know. We know that there's payback required. All of life is about you cross a line and you have to pay it back. And then the prodigal son wanders home. And, and did you notice in his speech he's got a payback line? Here, here's the payback line in case you missed it. Father, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I'm the worst, and uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's the payback line. Make me like one of your servants. Just take me in as a servant. I'll be happy with servant. In other words, to pay you back, God, I, I, my payback is just going to be like slavery under, in your house. When he comes and the dad hugs him, did you notice the dad interrupted him? He stopped him, read, read it in Luke 15, he stops him at the payback line. God refuses to be paid back. He will not take your payback. Whatever it is that you've done wrong, no matter how far you've wandered to a distant land, you try to come back and you think that it's just going to be the same thing with everybody else. Somehow I've got to make it up to God. I've got to go to church every week. I've got to... God's like, no. 
interrupt you. No, you're my boy. You're my daughter. No, we are met when we come back home, not with payback. We're met with grace. This is the good news of the whole Bible. We're met with grace when we come home. Grace is a word that just means it's a free gift. You didn't earn it. You came home out of this, and you struggled out of this, and you came home, and you found no payback. Incredible that God is like that. And we end up back home. We end up back with the God who loves us, except this time, we appreciate it. And don't be naive. I'm not naive to this. We may need to do multiple of these circles, knowing myself and how I'm wired. I've been on a few trips down this road. There is one last trap I want to tell you about, though. There's a third trap. And we hear that. This is the brilliance of Jesus again. We hear about the third trap when he talks about the older brother. The third and most dangerous trap is if you are sitting and listening to this talk and thinking, this does not apply to me. The most dangerous runaway is the runaway who doesn't think they have run away. Guys, some people, some people will rebel with heroin. Other people rebel by keeping track of their church attendance and feeling proud about it. Some people will rebel by going off and doing whatever it is and just living it up out there and other people will memorize verses and, and, and feel pride about how much they know. And Jesus, whew, ah, read, the, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what will fly at you is Jesus' words of danger about trap number three, which is the older brother's heart that says, I've never actually run away. But his heart ran away. He feels like a slave. He has no love. He's religious. He's not tied to God with a vibrant relationship that understands that he's been rescued. And the irony is, at the end of the parable, who's still lost and who's found? The, older, the younger brother's home, and there's a party. We end the parable with the older brother still now is lost. Ironically, he's gone. Guys, remember your journey on this. It, it, if you feel like it's been a long time since you've been stuck in this circle, think back. Or this circle, think back. Or this circle, this trap, Think back to those traps because you have to remember this. And the more you remember this, the more you actually come home and then ironically, this is weird, you don't just stay home, you actually re-enter the circle in a different way. God will invite you back into the circle, back into love, back into adventure, back into significance, except in a new framed way that says this is actually how life was intended to be. Welcome home into real life. This is what Jesus says in John 10.10. 10. It says, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. Boom, 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 these traps. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And we're going to enter back into this circle full of life, living the way God intends us to live. 
Guys, if you have been away from home, if you have something in your past that you have felt shame over, I want to ask you today, would you come home? If you have been proud of your church attendance or proud and you think I've never run away, I, I want to invite today, come home. Today's the day. Would you consider coming home today? If you feel like God has been in the rearview mirror forever and you're afraid to actually reach out to him and say something to him, would you maybe today just start with a baby step prayer, even if it's just you saying, God, I want to come home. Would you help me? Guys, I'm praying that for some of us in this room, today's the day, not tomorrow, that today's the day that we would come home. God, please, I pray, uh, and this is personal for me as I talk about this, uh, because I realize how far away from you I have been. I have got trapped in all three of those circles. I pray, God, that... um, that we would have the courage together to be honest about our guilt, to break free from our shame, and to come home today to a God who has his arms wide open. Lord, get our eyes out of those blinding lights and get our hearts around you that is inviting us back to you, the Father that's ready to embrace us. So God, today we want to come home. In Jesus' name, amen.